0: Alright, so here we are, the Classroom Critics, coming right from a uh, screening of Vertigo, Alfred Hitchcock's 1958 uh, classic thriller. A film that's di- really difficult to kind of categorize, but I'll tell you, I think we turned to each other during this. Um, it's the first Hitchcock film I've ever seen on the big screen, and uh, I'll tell you what a film to see on the big screen in all its, its color. There's just so much about it I want to get to, so... What are your initial um, reactions seeing it right there? You know, um, in full color, widescreen. I was, I was, I was floored.
1: I think it was an event in the in that perfect sense of going to see a movie uh, that you might not get these days, other than the one or two big blaster, big blockbusters that come out. Everything. So you watch a film at home, but this was this was a film that was you have to see it in the large screen I think. Yeah, um, there's so much that you miss on a television screen, even those giant 62 inch or 58 inch or whatever screens today. So um, I've been thinking about it since since we've seen it. It's um, it's
2: it's that good. And I think, you know, we, we are, we're privileged to see it in the medium that, that Hitchcock designed it for. Yeah. You, know, you take that opening shot of the two eyes and, and just, you know, if you're watching that on a tablet or even a widescreen TV, you just don't get that overwhelming sense it's something about seeing, you know, 40 feet wide, a picture with remastered stereo sound. And it just, uh, can't be beat. And sitting in a darkened theater with other people too. There's something special about that as
1: well.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this film just recently swapped places with Citizen Kane on the, uh, the sight and sound list. Uh, it is now considered uh, by many scholars and critics to be the greatest film ever. Um, so I guess we can we can get to that, but um, you know what? What do you think? Is it um, you know? I, I'm personally not someone who who loves to rank things, but when something tops a list, you sort of almost feel compelled to uh, address that. And this is an important movie, you know. Um, some people would say that this is, this is Hitchcock's um, magnum opus. Personally, I there are several Hitchcock films I I like better, mm-hmm. but um, what do you think? Is it in your mind, do you think it's uh, deserving
2: of that that spot? Well, we talked today about, you know, at lunch about giving Oscars out 10 years after <laughs> the film to, to really see if the film has stood the test of time. I kind of get why audiences didn't respond to this film at first. Um, it's, like you said, it can't be defined. It's such an unusual plot. You're never sure of where it's going or, or what you would put it in. So I think that might have put people off at first, but in retrospect, that becomes, you know, part of its genius. So, I mean, I don't... Uh, It's hard to say because you're comparing two things that are great and pioneering, you know, which is better because they both left an indelible stamp. But I think it definitely deserves a status as one of the greatest. I do too. I I think, especially after seeing it on
1: the on the big screen, I think it is one of the best films Mm -hmm. uh, of all time. I I don't. I'm like you. I don't necessarily think it's the best, um, but my mind changes over the best film uh, Mm -hmm. depending on my mood. But I do like the fact that, you know, look, it's so psychedelic. Maybe audiences weren't ready for it in 1958. Mm-hmm. Um, it's before the Summer of Love. It's before Psychedelia really took hold, um, you know, pre-Beatles. So all of those things that that I think after watching it now, Hitchcock's so far
0: ahead of his time sure. when he makes this film. I don't think audiences knew what they were seeing. Exactly. Oh, nor did the critics. I mean, this film uh, received mixed reviews. Yeah. Um, Hitchcock, I guess, was... Um, You know, kind of uh, put off by it. He was very disappointed in um, in its uh, its um, reception. Uh, One thing he kind of uh, blamed was um, the fact that he cast Jimmy Stewart, um, who was fifty at the time. yeah. Um, You know, Hitchcock always liked to cast. um, I say always, but he often would cast uh, Jimmy Stewart in, in you know classic everyman kind of role because he was that. You know, Jimmy Stewart was the quintessential every man um you know and i think with a character like scotty i mean he's so problematic that you had to cast him correctly otherwise you really you would really have trouble yeah um following him or, or caring too much about him so um you know an, an obsessed jimmy stewart is a very interesting character i think uh some say this is a film uh about obsession but um Kind of, I think it kind of crosses the line from obsession into uh, aggression. Mm. You know, he's, he's more than obsessed you know, with uh, Kim Novak's character. Um, but um, you know, what do you think about that? Do you think it? For me, you know, you mentioned the plot. Uh, Walt. this is um, for for me. It seems like the plot is almost secondary in this movie. I sometimes think that that Hitchcock felt that plots were almost like an, an inconvenience. This, you know, what I'm saying like there are plot holes in this movie, mm-hmm. you know, um, which we can get to. But it's almost like he uses the plot as just a way to explore something, something greater to um, experiment. I think this is kind of an experimental movie, you know, um, and the plot is. You know, he uses his classic MacGuffin, right? And he yeah. famous, famously uh, explained the idea of uh, this object, this thing that, you know, drags a character through situations and along in a, in a film. And, uh, you know, and it's not really important in of itself. It's um, just a way to get you from point A to point B. And Hitchcock was exploring other things through this MacGuffin. What's, uh, so what do you think's the MacGuffin in this film? Good question. Um, I don't know,
1: but I, I, I like the, I like what he does with it and it's it's a psychological piece, right. So mm-hmm. he's looking at the psychology of so many different characters. You mentioned Jimmy Stewart a few minutes ago and you know the fact that Jimmy Stewart is this kind of all-American every man and he's playing a detective and he's playing this detective that, that comes straight out of Noir, Uh, You know, somebody who's who's damaged. This detective isn't so much an alcoholic and womanizer as as he is. He suffers from vertigo. So Mm -hmm. he gives him a kind of safe um, handicap. Uh, And and Jimmy Stewart is very likable, even in this film, although I do think there are times when he when he becomes aggressive, Mm -hmm. uh, especially at the end um, when he says, did you know, did you rehearse with him? And he has her, you know, he has Kim Novak, and he's he's very violent with her uh, in a way. So that's, for me, the part when when, when the character uh, of Scotty comes alive. Mm-hmm. He plays an understated. I think Jimmy Stewart is really, really good in this film. He, he plays an understated for, for most of the film, and then it's all leading up to that one moment. You know, he's, yeah. he's, he's you know, he, he loses the girl, he finds a lookalike, he has her uh, dress like the the one that has died. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are reports of, of a necrophilia-type
2: uh,
0: um, theme going on there.
2: Sure, but, sure. Yeah, I mean, what
0: do you think, the, the, the MacGuffin in this?
2: Oh, that's a tough episode. question because it's just so so many left turns in, in this movie where, you know, you think you kind of have a handle on what's going on and it becomes almost a different film for a while. And then, yeah. you know, in the end, I mean, um, I always look at a movie, it can rise above its flaws, but I always look at the the, the villain in the film, the, the man who orchestrated the the murder and the thing and, and a lot of pieces had to fall in place for his plan to ultimately work so you yeah. have to get past that it's it, only Hitchcock can pull off an uber contrived scenario <laughs> and have a character that's too old for the way he's a reference but still have it work I mean, right. you know the Jimmy Stewart store has a reference to Barbara Belgetty's character Midge you know when we were in college together and I kind of whispered to Bill uh, you mean when he was her professor <laughs> 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 that's the only right. uh that's the only reference to age really I think it doesn't yeah. matter I, I you know Made December romance kind of thing going on works for me as as far as that goes. But the MacGuffin is, um, I really think, in a sense, uh, Scotty's character, mm-hmm. because you think he's one thing with suffering from something, and then he turns into something else entirely. Yeah. And and yeah, the girl switches up as well. But uh, you know, in the end, he's he's sort of pursuing this figure in his own mind, but but. She's in on it all the time. It's so complicated that, you know, I think that standard MacGuffin, it's more ethereal. Yeah. Yeah.
1: He's pursuing this ghost the whole time. So not even after she dies, but also it's, it's, it's Kim Novak who is actually Judy playing Madeline. Uh,
2: So she doesn't, she doesn't exist. Madeline doesn't exist. And it's it's all an act. Retroactively, she was in on it the whole time. So, so she's knowing and. You know, what is that scene where he's just trying to get her and and his eyes are burning with just lust and she's, you know, she knows. And if you watch that scene knowing she knows, as with all great Hitchcocks, you know, when you know the answer to Psycho, you watch it again and you see a whole whole different movie, you Mm -hmm. know, for this well.
0: Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing with with Psycho and how it sort of veers from Hitchcock norm is, um, you know, with Psycho we are – uh, you know he uses a lot of surprise, you know mm-hmm. elements of surprise. But with a film like this, I mean, yeah, there is some surprise in it. But he, um, you know, Hitchcock reveals things to us that he didn't have to reveal that a lot of other filmmakers would not have, like the um, the flashback um, where Judy, you know, basically turns towards the camera and we're basically shown Hitchcock shows us the plot, right? Or the um, yeah. The, the the murder plot, right? We we the whole thing is revealed in a flashback yeah. in her her head. Uh, and if you think about it, the whole thing could have been revealed at the end. Yeah. The whole plot, which a lot of murder mysteries are, it's sa- it's saved toward the end. But um, you know, I think Hitchcock liked to reveal stuff, equip the uh, the viewer to enjoy, it. and that's that's how he defined t- um, suspense versus surprise. You know, suspense. Uh, that's the example he gave was, you know, um, surprises when you see a scene in a uh, in a restaurant and a bomb suddenly goes off. But suspense is when you see a few scenes earlier, mm-hmm. the, you know, the um, culprit putting the bomb under yeah. the table, and then suddenly when you go to the restaurant, there's there's tension.
2: Yeah, he's not in any hurry to reveal the tricks up until that point, and then it's all it all comes in in a rush, and I, mm-hmm. you know, then it's like, oh. Everything makes sense. <laughs> it's
1: all, he puts a lot of
2: these false endings
1: in. You know, you think the film is over, and it's
0: not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, as I, it, we we see this, you know, this flashback um, of the tower scene from from Judy's perspective, right? And um, you know, it becomes clear that this was uh, fabrication. And it's just, it's, I think it's interesting that he chose to do that because. Uh, um, you know, he didn't. He didn't necessarily have to. Um, and it, what's interesting too is a lot of this film has. Um, it contains what Hitchcock called pure cinema. Uh, Hitchcock not only thought that plot was, um, you know, plot details were kind of inconveniences or uh, just something that doesn't really necessarily matter. You know, plot holes like who cares? You know, it's, it's not important. But I think he also felt that dialogue was often just very. Unnecessary. Um, so you have segments of this movie where it's just complete visual, um, you know. Especially when Scotty's following Madeline around. I mean, there's blocks of time where it's just yeah. there's, there's really little to no dialogue.
2: Well, and I read in that too. You see some movies like the, set in San Francisco, say the the car chase in Bullet, and the director has cobbled together streets that don't connect. But right. they said that you can actually take Scotty's entire journey around San Francisco. He maintained. The continuity of time and place there for folks very familiar with the city, right? Yep. Which is I like to going with that. I like to talk. One of, one of the things people everybody likes something in a Hitchcock movie they look for like his random appearances, yeah. or Or especially the one thing I like is, and this is part of his eschewing plot. I, I don't know what, if there's a name for it, but he will do a narrative leap, and then instantaneously fill in the blank. Like for example, in North by Northwest, when he's reaching down to pull her up mm-hmm. from the Rushmore, and then. The next shot you see him pulling her up into the berth of a train and and he says hello mrs thornhill and you know everything there oh he saved her and they got married yeah and in in um, in vertigo it's after the police officer falls off the roof at the beginning
0: mm-hmm.
2: and then the scene cuts and he's in midge's apartment and i think you even turned to me and said how did he get off the roof? But, you know, it's revealed that he had been in a cast that he yeah. was wearing a corset, and his legs were healing, so he fell. Yeah, and they don't show it, but it's, it's all of a sudden, all the questions answered, and we move on. And we've we've had literally, I think, six months of time. We've left ahead. I just love it when he does, and he's playfully, you know, handling that cane,
1: yeah. right? So it's it's yeah, he right. doesn't need it anymore, but he does need it. <laughs> and
0: right. Well, what about? I mean, they don't really explain. He doesn't really explain, and maybe I missed something. Um. Remember when he goes into the uh, the little hotel and talks to the the lady at the desk, um, and he swears he saw her go in, yeah. go upstairs, and turns out she didn't or wasn't. I mean, not <laughs> aren't we led to believe that it's a supernatural thing at first, that there's it's a ghost story almost at yeah. first?
2: Yeah, a lot of it's in a graveyard too. Yeah, I was watching
0: her. Right. So <laughs> that I mean, that's that's kind of a uh, a red herring or something. Sure. But, but um, You know, he doesn't really... (laughs) And there is this sense of hallucination,
1: too. I mean, that's led right from the very beginning to showing the eyes all the way up through the the psychedelic moments. Mm -hmm. um, That, you know, perhaps he's hallucinating. Mm -hmm. Perhaps Mm -hmm. he isn't in his right mind.
0: You know, there there are quite a few um, scenes, honestly, quite a few, but the scenes where he is following her into the graveyard, into the church, uh, there's a subtle difference in the... um, the imagery that well the image there's um like a lens fog I don't know if you noticed but uh you know he he either switch lenses lenses or he maybe perhaps he even um, um put some sort of substance on the lens like they they would do during the silent era but that there's just a, a almost like a slight film on the lens it, it's it's very very subtle but it just it just appears that she is more um, kind of ghostly you know it just sort of changes the vibe very very subtly. Does he you do
2: that in the museum too, when she's looking at the portrait?
0: Um, that I'm not sure of. I'm Not sure of. I, I, I certainly um, I know that when she's outside looking at the the, the gravestone, that's. But, um, I know that when she's in the flower shop, it's very
1: vibrant compared to the yeah. to the graveyard. Definitely, um, yeah. she's much more tangible
2: in that in that mm-hmm. episode. Yeah. He makes far better use of San Francisco than Tommy Wiseau did in the <laughs> Who else would mention those two directors in one shot? But, you know, Tommy went and bought all the stock footage of San Francisco he could find and it jams it into his film, where Hitchcock incorporates it into the story.
1: It's almost a love letter to San Francisco yeah. in a way. Yeah.
0: Yep, definitely. And he's
1: taking this French novel, which is really where the sort of, you know, the, the basic elements of the plot come, and, and he's making it a quintessentially American film.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, have definitely.
1: You, did you, uh, by any chance, read the novel? I haven't read it. I have
2: not, no. no. I, read, I don't know uh, if it's still in print or. He, I mean, he changes it, like you said, he changed it. Like I read the the novella The Birds, and Tomarier's yeah, yeah. version, and it's, just, it's almost not even the same yeah. story. Uh, and I like them both separately. Yeah.
0: But, uh, this is, um, yeah, it's um French novel, Among the Dead. And um, from what I hear, I mean, th- there actually have been some claims that because um, Hitchcock wanted to do one of their novels previously, but I guess the the film rights were were snatched from him. But it's been said that this um, novel was written kind of like with, with Hitchcock in mind. Um, so, yeah, and Hitchcock felt that you know, when you make a film of a novel, it's it becomes yours. Yeah, you, you know, he really had no. Qualms about changing it entirely. Um, he didn't kind of like Orson Welles, you yeah. know, his his idea of like you know I, I'm I'm not going to illustrate the book with my movie. You know, he, it's, it becomes a different thing. Um, and I think this I haven't read the book, but well,
1: was, the director becomes a reader in that sense, right? So yeah. so he or she is. This is my interpretation. That's how I've always thought of it yeah. of yeah. this yeah. novel or or short
2: story or, or novella, like, yeah. like Picasso painting his version. It, Reality. Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. I just want to mention too. I, I like uh, you know Hitchcock's famous for for pioneering a lot of film uh, film things. Film things. Great, great technical terms. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, a lot of people don't know, but in, in this film and others, great use of matte painting. You know, yeah. everybody Star Wars we think of matte paintings, but if you look at the the UN in, in North by Northwest or the, the a lot of the backgrounds of the Birds, and then the the mission here where he yeah. has the bell tower. You know, it's not flashy, it doesn't dwell on it, but it's there, and you can tell if you really look for it, that uh, early pioneering yeah. use of that technique. Um, mm-hmm. And what's the one he does with the, the, he pulls the camera away and zooms in to show Scotty's Vertigo, uh, there's a name for that technique. There he, is, I, I don't recall it, but... Have to look it up, but he, he, what I like about it, now, I'm not a huge Quentin Tarantino fan, and all my listeners, my listeners the listeners out there will <laughs> probably be angry about that, but I, when I watch a Quentin Tarantino movie, I'm watching Quentin Tarantino direct a movie, it takes me out of the story. Yeah. But Hitchcock has this effect, and he doesn't jam it down your throats. He, he hits it a couple of times, but he doesn't dwell on it. So you're never quite sure what you're seeing, what you're feeling what Scotty's feeling, and, and it's part of the story. And I just like those choices. I think you're right. There's much, he, Hitchcock is much more subtle
1: than Quentin Tarantino. But I do think you're always, at least for me, I always know I'm watching a Hitchcock film. I mean, there is that flavor to it. Um, Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, watching it this time on the big screen specifically, I I was amazed at how much something like Basic Instinct just stole from from this (laughs) film. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, some of the shots, the aerial shots and things like that.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. During the scenes where he's being, uh, or where um, Madeline's being followed, you know, you kind of ask yourself, did she know she was being followed?
2: Well, that would explain the um, the hotel mystery, right? The, whether whether she was doing that on purpose.
0: Yeah, yeah, I guess so. That that would make make more sense than that, with that in mind. Um, so, uh, Roger Ebert once said that this film is about how Hitchcock used, feared, and tried to control women. <laughs> what do you think about that? Well, that's a
1: lot of, uh, <laughs> especially in, in in the Me Too movement now. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I read an interview with Kim Novak today, as a matter of fact, where she said he was actually great to work with, um, that he he never handled her heavily at all, that he he allowed her to, to play the part uh, that, you know, that she envisioned for herself. He, he never came on to her. So she had a very good experience with Hitchcock. She was she's she's very clear about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that there is something going on with Hitchcock and and. This idea of control and fear, mm-hmm. uh, whether it goes back to his personal life and his relationship with his own wife, or his his need to be loved uh, by both his fans and and his public and his his actors,
2: or th- th- there's something interesting going on there. I'm not quite sure what it is, but <laughs> something. Yeah, you know, some works I think you can look at and and psychoanalyze yeah. the uh, the artist, but some some things you can see like like was that intentional? Is he even aware? That he's bearing his own psyche here or not? I mean, Hitchcock, I think, was he's smart enough, but mm-hmm. I don't know how self-aware are are people when they
0: become artists, right? It, it again, I think, I kind of kind of goes back to his casting, the brilliance of casting someone like uh, Jimmy Stewart. If you think about his ca- um, Jimmy Stewart being cast in a Rear Window, you know, we're um, being asked to care about a character in Rear Window. Who sits around all day in a wheelchair and stares in the people's yeah. windows? Yeah. Uh, so if you miscast that, um, if you let's say I don't know, cast Peter Laurie or something <laughs> in the role, uh, it would be a very different movie, right? Yeah. But the fact that it's Jimmy Stewart, you can almost um, um, it sort of normalizes it a little yeah. bit, as, as far you know, uh, as much as it can be, because again, he is the uh, he is the the everyman. And there's, I would say there's a little bit of
1: voyeur in all of us, uh, mm-hmm. that we all do that to a certain degree. Isn't, isn't that what watching a film is? You're playing the part in a dark theater of, of really a voyeur. Yes. In a sense, you're looking into the lives of other people for an hour and a half or two hours or so. And uh, so he's, I, this goes to Hitchcock's brilliance. At least it seems to me he's tapping into that kind of instinct that we all have. He's putting a little bit more of a sinister twist on it. Uh, but that's, that's appealing, obviously. Um, his, his reputation precedes
2: him.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, he's playing, it's the audience, you know. Yeah. Like, like a violin, and it's great. I mean, yeah, the I agree with the voyeuristic tendencies, and it's it's, it's voyeurism without risk. You yeah. Can, you can watch exactly. a murder without being implicated in a murder, and so you don't look away. Right. right. Unless you don't like blood, but, you know, you, you watch, and you're fascinated. hmm
0: hmm And uh, some interesting points about... Um, Madeline's wardrobe. Um, if you notice, like the like probably the most iconic uh, costume in this film is her, her gray suit, yeah. right? And um, it's uh, it's been said that you know Hitchcock wanted to make um, you know her character seem uh, perhaps more striking or off putting in a way and, and when he decided to give her a gray suit because um, you know it's it's been said that blondes should not wear gray. Um, it, it, especially back then, you know, you know color coordination mm-hmm. was far more of a, uh, of a of a thing, you know, when it comes to uh, you know, depending on what complexion you are, what color hair you were, if you were someone who cared deeply about you know your your fashion, it was you know probably more proper for a blonde to wear, I don't know something else, and I guess gray was not the ideal color. So, I guess that's exactly what Hitchcock had in mind when he had her wear that, that suit. Um, you know, and then it's kind of like, um, doesn't it kind of reflect on the, the morality of the character in a way? You know?
1: It does. There's an anonymity to Grey as well. Yeah. And it's, it is neither one thing or another. Uh, it, uh, it testifies in a way to her existence or lack of existence. Because mm-hmm. we never really know who Madeline is, right? We just know she's the wife. And and but other than that, it's Mm -hmm. it's Judy that we know. Mm -hmm. She's the one who's practicing the part. So we never get to know Madeline really.
0: Judy in the end really wants Scotty to love love her, doesn't she? Yeah. Um, She is not Madeline. She's not that refined. Isn't that what we're led to believe? Yeah. That Judy is um, perhaps not as uh, elegant. Does not have you know. Kim Novak obviously changed her her speech pattern a bit. She kind of you know um, Madeline had more of a you know the mid Atlantic kind of mm-hmm. um, quasi British accent, and then once she becomes Judy again, she seems more um, I don't know more of a common dial- dialectic, more earthy, yeah. yeah. And um, the fact that Jimmy Stewart's character Scotty wants her to <laughs> you know, go back um, to pretend, you know, she's having, she's having trouble with that. Do you think that Judy loves Scotty? Do you think she, I mean, do we take her at face value when she says that, you know, during all this plot, you know, d- d- during this whole scheme, um, I, I fell, I fell in love that she says as much, right?
2: I think she may have at first, but I think that when she realized that the only relationship they were going to have is her pretending to be someone else, then she's like, I- "I'm in a little deep here." Yeah, I uh, this is this is beyond my murderous uh, heart's desire. Yeah, yeah. Look, look, it's almost as if she was hired to be in a B movie
1: by the husband, and she's continuing on with that role long after the fact. She saves the dress. Right. She keeps it in the closet. So it's, it's a remnant uh, of the part that she played. And I think we have to remember she's this kid who gets off the bus in, in L.A. like a thousand other young young kids who, who arrive in L.A. thinking of something better. Uh, Scotty's her ticket out in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think she would believe in anything for that until I think, as you quite rightly pointed out, Walt, well, she she finds
2: herself way over her head. Yeah, when you when you see Jimmy Stewart in that moment that you, you cited where you know he, he turns violent yeah. almost uh, you know what what have I done yeah kind of think it's hard to feel sorry for because she has knowingly you know yeah. helped him murder which always brings me back to Galvin elster boy he was he a clever man his character doesn't get a lot of screen time but you know oh my, my old friend has acrophobia uh, and vertigo and I'm going to murder my wife so I'm going to hire a woman who's going to get him to the tower in in the mission because I know he won't go up those last few stairs where I'll be hiding with my dead wife and throw her out the window that's uh <laughs> that's a hell of a gamble I that's know, right? Yeah. That's, of,
0: that's dedication right yeah. there
2: yeah <laughs> I, I like. I think it's funny, this is a film, um, I think it's an early example of what they call the Mandela effect, where a lot of people remember the same wrong thing about something, because yeah. if you ask most people from this movie, they'll tell you vertigo is a fear of heights, and it's not, it's uh, acrophobia, and they, the film makes it clear in the beginning, Scotty yeah. distinctly says acrophobia and vertigo, but now we associate vertigo with this, and <laughs> I just think it's funny that, uh, That's a
0: good point.
2: that uh, the people remember it that way. Right. Small cast, by the way, if you think about it. yeah,
0: um, f- Five characters, right? I mean, five central characters. Yeah,
1: a couple of supporting. Pictures, and, yeah, right. And that's about it.
0: I mean, I think we have to talk about uh, Barbara Bill Geddes. Yeah. Uh, Midge, you know, um, very interesting character. In fact, uh, you know, she has her own little obsession going on, right? Yeah.
1: That was my only disappointing part about the movie was was how he left her. I thought it was very unfinished. Yeah, um, I Hitchcock, the, leaving her, yeah Hitchcock leaving her. Um, yeah, Hitchcock leaving her. I, I like the scene, the last scene with her in it, sort of wandering away from us, uh, walking in into the distance. But um, there's something incomplete for me about that. Yeah, maybe it's because she does such a terrific job as an actress that I, I, you
2: know, she's mesmerizing on the screen. Yeah. Definitely. she's got that inner spirit that yeah sort of pixie demeanor yeah she does she, she just sort of disappears yeah and, and then it's like well I liked her but
0: mm-hmm. what happened yeah. I love how there's just an interesting moment I think towards the beginning when um, Scotty and, and midge are in the um, the apartment and she's working on her uh, brazier plans and he's you know going on about retirement and all that and uh, you know there's so much there's so much about their relationship that is just, um, you know, kind of hinted at. And, and so you, you can just tell within a few moments that she, you know, that, you know she really loves him, yeah. you know, deeply. You know, and, and Hitchcock tells us this through just a simple little shift of, of, uh, of a camera angle. Uh, you know, they're talking, you know, and there's basically, you know, just typical, you know, reaction shot, reaction shot, cutting from Scotty to Midge. But suddenly when the conversation shifts from, you know, into something a little bit more personal, and I forget the exact line, but it goes back to to Midge and it's a slightly canted angle with her looking, uh, it's it's sort of canted, um, almost like a high angle shot. And she looks uh, over her glasses, stops what she's doing, looks over her glasses back, um, not directly at Scotty, but the implication is that she's sort of, Tuning into the moment, and it just it's just a, it's like a little, little hint of her uh, feelings toward him. You know, just that, that one. It just goes to show you like how important uh, a simple shift of camera angle can be, and it's just uh, I think a really neat moment. And uh, I, I, I always feel like um, so uncomfortable for her when she when she makes the uh, self portrait. Yeah, what did you make of that? Did you find that? Uh, she was trying to be funny
1: or, I mean, there's, there's a bit of cruelty to that as well. Yeah. And pain. And pain. Yeah.
2: She's she's an angry,
0: she's an awkward, awkward person. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's tough to even tell what Hitchcock was going for. Was he trying to, you know, uh, was that a comic relief there or, because when you, when it's, when it's shown, you know, and we saw this, we we saw this with an audience, there's uncomfortable laughter. Yeah. When you see that, because it's, and very a very off-putting image. That's yeah, disturbing. Um, it's disturbing. The image itself is disturbing. You're disturbed for her, uh, you know, because she made a very uh, inappropriate miscalculation that <laughs> you can't. You you got to feel sorry for. Her. And um, Scotty's reaction doesn't help matters. She he storms no. out of there. <laughs> it's actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I think
1: his his you know Stewart's playing of that scene is. Is absolutely brilliant. It's you know he just says no, shakes his head, and and kind of just leaves. It's not funny. It yeah, it's not funny, right? Like that, and yeah. I thought that was just that really stood out to me as as, as a
0: fundamental yeah, scene. Definitely,
2: I think there's the 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 nineteen um, fifties equivalent of of texting the girl who just broke up with you <laughs> a thousand times in an evening. You know it's wrong, right? But you're hoping she takes it in context. <laughs> you know yeah. it's funny because he could have had Midge. You know, yeah. she given, and, and she would have accepted his obsession. I think that's why she's that's what she's saying to him. I, I, I could be this person. Yeah, right? and, and he, he wants the un, unreachable because Kim Novak ultimately is uncomfortable with that, mm-hmm. and so that's are sort of doppelgangers, I guess. Yeah, in a sense,
0: you wonder how. <laughs> it, it, this, the scene I think always gets um, an interesting reaction when I've seen it with people, and then you know certainly when we saw it with an audience. When, uh, you know, um, Madeline suddenly finds herself uh, naked in his apartment. You know, um, we don't necessarily know about the plot at this time, but we we do know that Scotty felt it was okay to uh, it, undress a yeah. woman that he doesn't know. Um, Put her in his bed. Yep. Um, take off all her undergarments. I mean, really. <laughs> so who's the villain then of the piece? It's, it, you know. Yeah, it's tough, you know, because we're again we're being asked to um, if, if rooting for is the right word, but like you know, Scotty is the protagonist, so we gotta care about him, yeah, care about his fate to some degree. But it's tough to do so when he, <laughs> he does something so grossly wrong and inappropriate, and
2: You've seen that scene in a hundred movies where the guys had to undress or the girls had to undress the guy when they're passed out, unconscious, injured, Mm -hmm. or whatever, and they always throw in this coy reference like, "Oh, I made sure I didn't look," or "Don't worry." Hitchcock doesn't throw that in; he he leaves that discomfort to just like settle on everything. Same thing with the painting. I'm not explaining this; it's here. This is what they did. Yep. Uh, Make of it what you will, and it's (laughs) it's
0: not good to think about too long. And what what. I mean, Hitchcock was obviously into into detail greatly, but the fact that he put, um, well, I guess, in collaboration with Edith Head. <laughs> uh, I, I just, I always love that that title when I see it. Um, but anyway, Jamie Stewart appears in that scene looking so completely wholesome. Yeah. He's wearing a sweater uh, with, you know, a college shirt under it. He looks he looks clerical, you know, in it. Um, and... You just realize that he is—he's uh, not, you know—he he just undressed a woman,
1: and of course, if I remember correctly, she has on this really provocative red robe, right? Uh, so it's it's mm-hmm. you know it's attracting the bull, so to
2: speak. <laughs> oh, and, and she got that robe from him, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> his robe. Exactly <laughs> right. Um, you, you know, he's just so. Now
1: that we're talking about it, I'm I coming to realize how sinister his character actually is. And, again, I think it's it's a testament to Jimmy Stewart's brilliance that he can pull that off.
0: Yeah. I think that's, uh, we've we got to assume that's what Hitchcock wanted, you know, yeah. to suck us in. And sometimes it might take a few viewings to really get how you know, sinister he he isn't. You know, and the fact that, again, it is Jimmy Stewart, you know, um, his, his just his mere presence. Yeah. Uh, kind of sucks us into his world. And his eyes, there's a lot of close-up on Stewart's eyes in this
1: film, which are, you know, a piercingly blue. Uh, in, yeah. in, in, and, you know, it's just the color and, and the way that, that Hitchcock absolutely, you know, showed this this man yeah. um, in all his vulnerability it, it becomes doubly sinister to me when I watch it that way. Okay. It, it yeah. reminded me a lot of the, the close-ups of... Henry Fonda's eyes when he played, who is my favorite villain of all time in, in Once Upon a Time in, uh, in, in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get this. You know, Henry Fonda again, another wholesome American actor who's playing this really,
2: really awful villain, and you get a lot of close up of his piercingly blue eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, and everybody compares Tom Hanks to Jimmy Stewart, but has Tom Hanks embraced that yeah. off putting villain yet? That one that we we wanted like so much that we're I mean, maybe that goes even to the modern day things. These people you hear that they, that they, they are getting light sentences for heinous crimes like rape. You know, yeah. they're are they is the jury being swayed because they may, out of context, look innocent? And and you know, right, right. here we have Jimmy Stewart, the All oh, Shucks Every Man, uh, who really has a long his long filmography of, of often playing characters that are troubled and dark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. as much as he did Holson. Mm-hmm. No, it's, uh, but this is a long way from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, or <laughs> you know uh, the,
1: the Christmas one that he does Wonder that I won't boy. mention. Yeah, go, <laughs> <on>. go, <laughs> ahead. go ahead. Sorry, sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I always love. I, I'm very interested in when directors of uh, director on director uh, insult. You know, um, sometimes you, you see, you hear of these legendary directors who didn't like one another's work. Um, Orson Welles famously did not like Hitchcock we talk a lot about Wells in this podcast which is funny because we you know obviously love his work we love Hitchcock's work but um Orson Welles did not see much uh much of anything redeeming in this film he told uh uh his friend director Harry Jaglum that he felt the movie was even worse than Rear Window which he did not like which Which I didn't yeah (laughs) which I, I love I just I I guess I don't get it, because, you know, uh, Wells believed uh, strongly that, you know, dialogue, lots of dialogue was was crucial. I mean, we're, we're talking about a former radio star, which would make sense that, I mean, how else do you tell a story, you know, in, in radio? Um, where Hitchcock came from the silent era. Yeah. Uh, that's that's how he came up as, you know, first, you know, the, the start of his career was in that silent world. Um so I, I always kind of find that interesting. And um, as a side note, um, Igmar Bergman hated the work of Orson Welles. <laughs> he thought that uh, Citizen Kane was a complete joke. But Don't you think there's a lot of
1: jealousy going on there among all of these directors? And I think there's <laughs> enough blame for all of them to take. At, at certain times, they might have wished they made that film or, or had the attention that this particular film received. Yeah. Um, you got to believe it. it's got
0: to be some of
1: that. I mean, yeah. Wells, you know, is notorious for his jealous streak and uh,
0: yeah.
1: and Hitchcock is, is, as well. And,
0: uh-huh, yeah, yeah. You
1: know, and Dino behavior. Yeah, uh, right, yeah. <laughs> and Bergman is so European compared to, you know, to the other two. It's um,
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think Wells said the same thing about Bergman that yeah. he felt, you know, he, I think he, he got bored easily with the films. As much as he loved films, um, he was someone who liked you know, um, plot and uh, sensationalism.
2: I think there's some some directors, writers, actors that, that really can't go to other people's works because they think, I would do it differently. I would yeah. do it better. And they can't enjoy the experience. And, and, and I think that's sort of the one of the trappings of genius is, is that whole thing. You can't escape your own uh, kingdom when you, someone else's work and, and we're talking about these directors who are very
0: territorial about their about their work mm-hmm. very very possessive it's like a gourmet chef yeah do they go to restaurants <laughs> i guess they have to but <laughs> they're friends yeah that's it <laughs> um so what do you think about we, we mentioned briefly san francisco uh, as the the setting of this food this film and he and hitchcock did a lot of um storytelling set in san francisco and and you Ask yourself why, why San Francisco? What was it about San Francisco? Why not New York or uh, you know? I mean, do you think this film could have um, taken place elsewhere? Do you think San Francisco? Was it important that it was in San Francisco? I read a story
1: where where Hitchcock particularly liked San Francisco for this film because of the hills and to show the the valleys and the peaks of the characters as they as they progress throughout mm-hmm. the film. So it was it was a, it was a a location that lent itself really well to this particular story he was trying to tell, mm-hmm. and you know, San Francisco's a lot more moody than L.A. Uh, it might not be as moody as New York, um, but there's a certainly a different character. The, the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, figures predominantly in this in this film. Sure. Um, yeah, famous spot for suicides and, and all of that, and of course, you know, Madeline jumps into the into the San Francisco Bay and. And, and
2: so there is that aspect as well. Right. I had read, too, and I, I, I forget where, but that Jimmy Stewart's character is either always driving slightly uphill or slightly downhill. Yeah. I think it's uphill in his pursuit of her, and that, that would be San Francisco. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, you know, New York is such an iconic city, and San Francisco is, but but at the time, you know, New York still the big apple of yeah. the place. You, you can't look anywhere in New York in a film and not see something seen before i think san francisco was just kind of a new landscape it's it's such an odd city i mean i like the, a lot of the tracking shots you see alcatraz island yeah. in, the, in the distance i can't remember if it was still open at the time uh, in 58 but mm-hmm. it was dark in the film you see mm-hmm. the island but there's no lights on it uh, mm-hmm. and, and you see all these places that uh, you know the what is it the the apartment that he's that mitch has there. you can see or, or is it his apartment where you can see i think it's, the but apartment. it's her apartment yeah, yeah. And you can see that, and they say that, that that's a real place. If that apartment still exists. You can still figure out where it is from where that yeah. landmark is placed. And I don't know. It just seems to be uh, with its many twisty, windy roads and that mixture of old and new, and slate European, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe that's just... I think it's much more of a labyrinth than
1: L.A. would be. Uh, but again, not necessarily New York. But if we're talking about San Francisco location, we've got to mention that phenomenal bookstore. Um, mm-hmm. that, that he, you know, the, I think what the film, the scene is almost five minutes long, maybe, but um, you know, it's, it's a terrific scene.
0: It's very interesting how uh, the the bookstore just darkens, yeah. Um, once she, he starts telling that story, uh, and there's really no, yeah, it's very surreal. It's very experimental. I mean, there's no uh, there's no practical reason for it, yeah. story wise. It's just Hitchcock thought that he <laughs> he you know, create the mood, uh, the darkness of the story.
1: I I always, I I remember first seeing them thinking it was me.
0: (laughs) Something was wrong
1: with my print of the film. And, uh, yeah, but, and and then I thought maybe, well, it's a storm coming in uh, because, you know, it's, there's something about San
2: Francisco that's very mercurial in that sense.
0: And then they leave and you see inside that it lights up
2: again. Yeah. (laughs) Once they they leave. Uh, That works on the big screen too because if you're watching that on a, you know, a, 50-inch TV in your right. living room, your eye is still taking in everything from left to right. Yeah. So that, that darkening doesn't focus you or any anything else. Whereas, in, you know, the big screen, if you're looking at the center of the screen, that, that's all a blur anyway. Yeah. And so it it goes out and, and enhances the effect. And I think that's one of those instances where the big screen is just, you're not going to get that move yeah. anywhere else. Or that effect.
0: Yeah. Also with San Francisco, I mean, you can with new york it's very tough to if your story is set in new york it's in new york with, yeah. with with san francisco you can you know there's a lot of opportunity i mean there are some key scenes that are sort of outside of san francisco like the redwood forest scenes. right um you know and, and you know scenes on the coast you know of course new york is also on the on the water but you know it, it's not as uh re, you know removed from the city proper you know it's uh, when you I think San Francisco has multi It's a city, but there's also opportunity for multiple environments.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you're looking across the bay at Oakland a lot. So the, the, there's those shots that are it's it's a city that's so divided uh, in in the best possible way. Yeah. Where New York is is broken up into the five boroughs, but you're always in New
2: York. Even exactly. if you're in the Italian section, yeah. you're in New York. You're still the Italian in the, section. yeah, yeah. You, right. It's it's a San Francisco is a, is a city with multiple personalities, yeah, and I exactly think that, that suits the theme. Because if you're in, in the Spanish section, exactly right, you know you have all the architecture and, and the whole feel, and then you're all into it, you know art, art deco
1: area. Yeah, um, and then you get to his apartment, which is ultra modern yeah. for the time. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. which is now back in style. <laughs> you know that that kind of furniture that he has, and the fireplace, and and all of that, which goes back to your earlier point, Bill, about him being this very wholesome
2: you know, with his sweater and, and, and everything like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, did you catch, I think in the opening scene, you said establishing the mood. He, she's, she's designing or drawing the brazier and they're discussing it casually, which is really not something you would think you know, a couple in the late in the 1950s would be doing. So that's an intimate moment. But then she references the underwear bra that was designed by her friend who's an aviator. Did you catch uh, who that is? It's Hughes who designed that. Oh, yeah, that's oh, right. Yeah, that's right. Russell. So yeah, for Jane right. Russell, that's right. A bleak reference to it. And yeah. I have to admit, I didn't pick up on that. I read it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a good catch. I didn't, but you're, yeah, that's right.
1: And what if she says something about it, it gives lift or support. Um, so that whole idea of, of women being support or needing support or, you know, it could be a play
2: there. Yeah, nothing nothing accidental. Right, of he, you know, especially in a Hitchcock film.
0: What what do you think, uh, what do you make of the scenes in the Redwood Forest? I mean, could that have taken place, those scenes? I mean, why was it important that was in the Redwood Forest? Was there anything uh, symbolic, metaphorical?
2: Those trees, have you ever been there, by the way? I have not, no, no, no. And I can tell you cool facts about it, but it's not, uh, those trees dwarf you in a way that nothing else does. And I think that he's a guy who's dwarfed by his obsession. He is just, and I think that that sense... uh, that we're just, we're, we're lost in something murky that's larger even than you can imagine. Because it really is, it reveals, you know, more and more how, how obsessed and, and sinister he is. So maybe that's... I'm, and the forest stands for
1: the unconscious, if we if we read, you know, certain therapists and, and, and psychologists. Um, so there, there is something there as well. Mm-hmm. And she walks away from him, if I remember correctly. And he has to go after her in
2: the forest. He has a little bit of control. And right. He has to pursue. Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, of course, you have the beautiful scenes down on the coast with the water in the background. Yeah. You know, just, I think for me, there's a lot of um, inferencing toward the idea of time, mm-hmm. passage of time. Um, you know, I, I like the you know, the shot of the, the tree and it shows like, you know, when the Magna Carta was signed, it was, yeah. you know, Shows you the ring, so you know I think it's a it's a big part of it. Um, I think we're going to mention too the uh, the famous um, in camera effect, the uh, the dolly zoom, right, which was uh, might have been the first film, film yeah. that this was used on, right? Um, I mean I think that that effect still um, still works. Oh yeah,
2: oh it's
1: used all the time especially in horror films, they use it. And, you know, you add a, a, a violin or something in it, you oh, know, it's, it's right. one of those iconic tricks.
2: Right. I've had dreams that make me feel like that, where yeah. you're running from something or to something and, and the perspective is skewed. You're never getting closer, but you feel like you're And, and I just, uh, he uses it quickly. So, you know, it gives you that sense of vertigo. But uh, mm-hmm. it's quite a shot. Yeah. It's quite a shot. Yep. Yeah. And,
0: um, I think we would be very remiss not to, uh, mention the Bernard Herrmann score. You're right. <laughs> and, uh, I think it's, for me, it's just one of our favorites. One right? of the, fa- oh, well, Bernard Herrmann, yeah, he's, the music stands alone. Yeah. You know, uh, most of his, you know, scores that I've heard, the music stands alone, but I think this is especially true. Um, just sublime stuff, you know, just really beautiful, swelling music that, um, I think really, I mean, it's almost like it's tailor-made.
2: Yeah. It's tailor-made for the story. I can't envision any other score working. <laughs> and we got to see it or hear it digitally remastered in yeah. stereo. And, yep. Yeah. It's just um, it's just perfect. You know, it's just
0: uh, a lot of dissonant chords and, um, you know, modulation from, you know, like this grandiose, you um, orchestral climaxes to something more minimal. And, um, especially during the scene, I mean, you, you got to rely heavily on the music when there's, you know, stretches of time when you have no dialogue. And, uh, I mean, the music is key for that. I think the music is just as important as, as the setting of the film. true. In this sense. Yep.
2: Yep. How about that shot? I talk about being remiss. We have to mention the shot when, when she emerges from the bathroom, uh, Fully dressed, and she comes out of that neon green fog, and because from the light behind him, and she just, you know, and I think that's where that maybe that early lens blurring effect it plants the seed because that that's there too, but it looks like the green lights blurring, and she just like a ghost, she just materializes out of there. It's such a surreal shot.
0: Yeah. What about the shot uh, where they they kiss? in the apartment, you know what, what I'm talking. About. Is, it, is it the yeah? Uh... Yeah, and they spin. Yeah, yeah. What yeah. what a, what a the background changes. I mean that what a what a yeah. special what an effect that is, huh? So let's 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 go over. So they're refresh memory. They're in the apartment, right? Is that is that where they are? Is that where they start off?
2: I think so because it starts out with the window in the background. Yeah. And then it, then it uh, switches to what? What does it switch to? Um...
0: Is it the mission? Why I
2: can't remember how you it. It's You'll have to correct shot. us, folks, on they, um, Facebook. <laughs> they had to film that lying down uh on a, and they had to spin them and the camera had to be set a certain way. So they were actually Is that right? Yeah. So they're that all right. was on the internet movie database. Ah,
0: uh, uh, so. we're gonna take a break, folks, and watch it. We'll be right back.
2: You have to think, is is you
1: know, it's it's almost as if that scene is played for the music. The music is that good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um you know, the way it's done often is they will... We're referring to the scene that we just talked about where we're on through the magic of, of editing. We are back. We just watched the scene it's just to refresh our memory. But what was I saying? Yeah, I mean, often you have um, composers who will... Um, you know, they'll get the rough cut of the film and then yeah. they'll, they'll write to that. Yeah. They'll write, they'll write the music score to that. That's why often it's so perfectly uh, composed. All right, so uh, we just saw the famous uh, scene um, of them... Um, you know, just giving into their uh, their passion. in, in her uh, her apartment, she comes out of the uh, the bathroom, uh, just engulfed in green light, transformed, transformed back into Madeline. And they uh, they kiss, long kiss too, right?
2: Yeah, but the build up too with that music swelling with her just, oh, it's, it's, it gives
0: you chill, it gives you sh- uh, chills, definitely. Yeah. And so the camera um, whirls around them. Mm-hmm. And we see, you know, the whole three three sixty of the of the well, starts off as the apartment, yeah. And then we're shown uh, the stables, right? Yeah, of, of the uh, of the mission of the mission.
2: <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> even even Stort stops kissing her long enough to look to around. To look around, what, yeah. <laughs> what is this bringing out in me?
0: <laughs> it's just it's a, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I'm sure. That, People can debate about this, you know, as to what exactly were being shown. Um,
1: And and it was that they were in the stable almost right before she she walked into the building. Correct? Is that the same prior?
0: Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. 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 Well. Certainly, something to uh, we'll be, we'll be laying down it tonight, thinking about what it means, and um, <laughs> we'll, we'll come up with some brilliant ideas in the Technically, of
1: the night. it's superb, it's a superb scene,
0: yeah. And it almost doesn't matter, does it? It almost doesn't really matter specifically what it means. Yeah. It, it, and sometimes, I think we can um, just rack our brains trying to give everything literal meaning. And I think it's one of those films that sort of kind of transcend that, yeah. You know, I, I would agree. And go, going back to the whole plot thing, you know, I mean, when it comes down to it, it's a story about. Obsession, and it could the, the plot could have it could have been so many different different things. It just it just seems like Hitchcock needed a reason for one character to become obsessed with the other, and it could have been any other scenario. It didn't really matter. He just sort of used this, but the the, the idea is that he needed two he needed a character to become obsessed with the other and follow her around, <laughs> um, and and he really just sort of nailed it. So we you gonna say. Did I interrupt you? No, no, no. no. I was,
2: the only thing I can pin down from the scene is it's it's uh, it's only imagery for Jimmy Stewart's character because she doesn't see it. She, yeah. she never stops kissing him, and he actually breaks from the kiss and looks around, puzzled, and then is like, "I could care less what I'm looking at," and he goes back to kissing <laughs> her. Uh, and so, whatever it is, it's it's symbolic for his.
0: It's in his mind. Yeah.
2: And it's, it takes place after his break, that, that
1: kind of psychotic break that he has where he doesn't speak for however long he doesn't speak. He just kind
2: of sits there, mute in the chair. Could it be? All right, now, she comes out from the bathroom fully transformed into who he originally thought yeah. she was, whom he knows is dead, and he knows that the mission is where it went. And he's, maybe he's looking around saying, something's not right here. But I don't care. Yeah. He goes back to kissing her and dismisses that, and they're back in the apartment, back in reality. I mean, that's my dime store psychology.
0: Yeah, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> the correct interpretation,
1: a and the interpretation. only interpretation,
2: and interpretation. <laughs> and it was a, a guess, yeah. swinging in the,
0: in the dark. The the finality of the film, of the final scene of this film, is. I think pretty haunting. Yeah. You know, they, uh, starting with the, uh, you know, the ascent up into the, uh, the tower there. And, uh, you know, this time it's, he's dragging her, you know, where before he, he's the one who had to struggle to get up. Mm. Mm. -hmm. And, um, someone was going to fall off. (laughs) Someone was definitely going to fall off.
2: I just didn't remember, you know, Tom Hanks and Forrest Gump. I met the president again. I can see Jimmy Stewart going, I was at my third inquiry where yeah. someone fell to their death in suspicious <laughs> circumstances. Again. Again. <laughs> we don't see that inquiry. But,
0: uh. And then we have um, probably the, the creepiest appearance of a nun in film history. <laughs> you know, uh, at first, shrouded in darkness to the point where... Um, I've seen some um you know, some earlier prints of this, not on the big screen, but you know, I've been mean, seeing on VHS years ago, just at first saying, What the what is that? What the hell is that thing? Yeah. I mean, you, you learn it none. Um, just, it's a nun. just it's very, very creepy, you know, and uh, and she's uh, Judy screams and falls off. Yeah. She she falls off because she's startled, right? Is that where
1: the interesting thing for me is that he he walks out into the ledge, right, and he looks down. So he, I mean, he's literally standing on the ledge at that point, and and he's looking down into the abyss.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you wonder where he goes from there. Yeah,
2: <laughs> she literally dies twice for him. Yeah, right. The exact same scenario.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then the uh, the nun rings the bell. You know, God have mercy. It's a very, uh, very striking ending. It's almost an abrupt ending if you think mm-hmm. about it, right? It ends kind of abruptly. But I think it's
2: uh, what he yeah, nothing more to say.
0: <laughs> Definitely uh, haunting, a uh, haunting conclusion. He,
2: he's not walking away from this one. No, he's
0: not. Yeah, too many coincidences mm-hmm. um, at this point. So the film that came before this one for Hitchcock was Rear Window, and the film that comes after this, um, Psycho. Psycho. Mm-hmm. So what a, what a run huh yeah, and perhaps was it North by Northwest before uh, Rear Window I'm not sure, um, but anyhow
2: that's one of my favorites like mm-hmm. of just because I love Cary
0: Grant yeah um yeah so no um, no I'm wrong North it's it's um Vertigo before North by Northwest and then
2: yeah that's what you had said. It's Vertigo, Psycho,
0: North by Northwest. Nope, um, Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho. Wow,
2: he, he he banged them out there. Yeah, because Psycho was what sixty one.
0: Sixty, right?
2: And this was fifty eight. Fifty eight. So, wow, three 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 movies like that in three years. That's an unheard of pace. Oh uh,
1: well,
0: I mean, no wonder Hitchcock was disturbed. Who wouldn't be? <laughs> well, three. I mean, three classics, right? I mean, yeah, three you know, fantastic movies. So, yeah, so Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, then the Birds.
2: Wow. What year was the Birds?
0: 63. Sixty-three. So we had a three-year gap um, between Psycho and the Birds. You
2: needed a rest. You needed
0: a rest after that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but then he comes back with the Birds, which is, you know, his treatment of tipiadrin and, and and
2: all of that. That
0: Yeah, know. yeah. Finally snapped. All he finally he, snapped.
2: Yeah. All that success on top of it. So, I mean, he's had a long, successful career. Right. right. Just just that so a- powerful mini time frame of mm-hmm. adulation and it's no wonder he maybe gets a little megalomania going <laughs> absolutely alleged
0: alleged megalomania. <laughs> so yeah um again this was a just an absolute treat to see this film on the uh on the big screen um we almost didn't happen you know andrew i don't know how you heard about that but we uh glad you, uh, purely by
1: accident. But you know, 60 years later, the film stands up. It's just as good. Mm-hmm. Um, and audiences seem to appreciate it now more than, than they did, obviously when it, when it was released. So, uh, yeah. again, I think that's just a testament to his genius yeah. and the genius of the actors.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, uh, we'll, we'll wrap up this discussion and, um, you know, here from the Sanu campus, um, you know, um, I'm sure we're going to be doing more Hitchcock films down down the road. Uh, we've already reviewed Psycho at one point, I think. So, um, you know, obviously his uh, filmography is pretty vast. You know, I, I love some of his really early stuff too. I mean, I think, you know, uh, for me, one of my favorite films of his is Rebecca. Yeah, and uh, I think he practically disowned that movie, but <laughs> uh, I personally love it. But you know, there's a lot there's a lot to discuss when it comes to Hitchcock. We'll never. Uh, We'll never run out of films.
2: I just, you know, and again, we've said it, but I'll, I'll repeat it. Anytime you can get a theater to show a classic film in its in its full, on a full screen, it's, it, it's unparalleled to me. This, the film.
0: Oh yeah. And it's a very different experience. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking of how few films I've seen on the big screen, you know, and you just got to keep an eye out for them. And, um, Really fantastic more people decided to go to them because they'd screen them more often. That's right. But you gotta kinda of look at look for them and um, and you're seeing it more and more with um, with you know, some specialty movie theaters. Yeah, the independent movie theaters. Yeah, you, know, you know, they're doing it.
2: Well not to beat a dead horse, but I had mentioned I think I had mentioned this to you, Andrew. My friend John had taken us so we went to see Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein back to back. And when you see those on the big screen, you know, they, they look silly on the small screen, but on the big screen they still move Terrify and, yeah. and overwhelm, and it's just a, it's a different experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, um, thank you, gentlemen. This has been uh, a lot of fun, and um, you know, for uh, Andrew Martino and Walt Freeman, I am uh, Bill Ivers, live from the Southern New Hampshire University campus. Um, thank you for joining us at the Classroom Critics Podcast. Uh, we hope you'll go on to Facebook, um, chime in, let us know what you think of. Uh, this film, and uh, give any suggestions you might um, you might want to give in terms of films that we we'll, that we could cover down the road. We're trying to get to them all, every film ever made. Just kidding, but uh, <laughs> no, we're trying to go through the list of of uh, bona fide classics. So we'd love to hear uh, hear your feedback and any suggestions you might have. Um, thank you for uh, joining us, the Classroom Critics, and we'll see you next time.